Hi, everybody. This is Dan Walker. Welcome to another edition of U.S. Law Radio. The Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act was signed into law earlier this year and is the most sweeping change to financial regulation in the United States since the Great Depression. So what, if anything, does it all mean to us? U.S. Law member Jonathan Wegner is an attorney with the firm Baird Home in Omaha, Nebraska. He specializes in banking law and financial and securities law matters. And he's standing by to help us sort things out. Jonathan, great to have you here on U.S. Law Radio. Oh, thank you very much for having us. So it's a big, sweeping piece of legislation, Jonathan, and it's a pretty good bet that most people listening in now probably don't have a firm grasp of all it entails. So can you set the table for us? Absolutely. You know, the Dodd-Frank Act was passed in July, uh, signed into law by President Obama, and it really targets banks. Banks were the primary focus of this reform package, but the actual impact is much broader. Congress really painted with a broad brush when they created this law, and it affects a whole slew of uh, companies. In particular, there's a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that's going to affect a lot of companies besides just banks. There's a lot of provisions that are related to reporting companies that are registered with the SEC. And there's a whole slew of new rules that apply to investment advisors, broker-dealers, and hedge funds. Anyone registered with the SEC is touched by this, so it really is big. It's not as bad as it could have been, but there's certainly a lot for people to look at besides just the banks. Okay, so besides banks, can you give us a look at who's affected? Absolutely. Well, first of all, there's this Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. While it's set up within the Federal Reserve, for all intents and purposes, it's really an independent agency. Uh, It's got a dedicated budget, and it's going to be able to supervise certain institutions and issue all kinds of consumer protection regulations. In addition to banks with more than $10 billion in assets, it has direct supervisory authority over payday lenders, uh, private student loan providers, all kinds of participants in the residential mortgage industry like originators, mortgage brokers, foreclosure relief service providers, all kinds of people. And then anybody who's deemed by the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, to be a larger participant of a market for other consumer financial products or services. It really defines what a consumer financial product or services very broadly. I mean, if you extend credit or engage in capital leases, you show stored value, you do check cashing, you provide financial advisory services and you're not registered with the SEC, you fall under the rulemaking authority of this bureau. So there's going to be all kinds of rules that could come out based on its rulemaking authority that will affect all kinds of companies besides just the banks that are ostensibly the primary target of the bureau. This Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, is this a good thing for us, do you think? It depends on who you ask, I suppose. <laughs> it's one of those, those things that for years and years, you know, banks have been subject to the same laws. They've been enforced by their primary federal regulator who've had an eye both on the need for banks to make money in order to stay in business or other financial firms to stay in business but it also enforced these rules with sufficient rigor for most people's purposes. That said, you know, what it's really doing here is bringing the, quote, shadow banking system under regulation. And I think for lots of bankers and lots of consumers, that'll ultimately be a good thing. The, the real battle that was going on in Congress was who's going to be covered, and the major battle lines were who's exempted. I mean, there's a whole bunch of exemptions under this rule. The big one that got headlines were auto dealers, but all kinds of small businesses that offer as merchants and retailers who offer purchase money credit. They're exempt real estate brokers, attorneys, people who are registered by state insurance regulators or the state securities commissions. They're all exempt as well. And there's a whole litany of carve-outs for uh, specific industries. And so 
the threshold question for most of our clients is, am I going to be subject to this? And that's something to sit down with your attorney and just figure out, you know, how does it going to affect my business going forward? Why are there exemptions, car dealers in particular? That's the lobbyist success is what that is, ultimately. They lobbied very hard to be exempted from the rulemaking authority. There was a compromise reached where the FTC now has authority to issue rules and regulations under the FTC's authority. So they could still be regulated. It's just not going to be by this bureau that's sole purpose and sole reason for existence is to provide protections for consumers. Ultimately, it's going to be incumbent upon the regulations that come out. We just really don't know what it's going to look like until it's up and running, and that could take up to a year just to get it started and set up. But once it's up and running, there's going to be lots of rules probably that'll be coming out, and they have significant amount of powers, you know, civil money penalties. They can issue cease and desist orders. They can have other forms of relief too, like rescission and reformation of contracts or refunds or disgorgements. Lots of things that could really come down. For our clients, you know, it's possible that they'll see plaintiff's attorneys coming after them, trying to privately enforce these rules and class actions. State attorney generals are also allowed to bring actions on behalf of their state to enforce the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's regs. Well, let's talk about reporting companies and listed issuers. And one that caught my eye was Say on Pay. Say on Pay, what's that? Say on Pay is an opportunity for shareholders to get involved in uh, providing approval of the compensation packages given to named executive officers. Now, these votes are non-binding, and so shareholders will have the opportunity to vote on these beginning for the first annual meeting held after January 21st, 2011. But it's, like I said, non-binding, and so this is really an advisory vote telling the compensation committee, yeah, we agree with the kind of compensation you're giving our executive. He's doing a great job. She's doing a great job. Or we have serious misgivings about the way the company is being run. Likewise, there's a golden parachute vote, and this is really kind of a misnomer. It's been called pressed by a golden parachute vote, but it really applies to any change in control of the company. So any time that a public company is bought or sold, it may be subject to a golden parachute vote if the shareholders have not previously approved that compensation award. And finally, there's uh, another facet. The shareholders actually get to decide whether SAM pay votes are going to be held every one, two, or three years going forward. What that means is we're going to have to put together a proxy statement that's going to allow them to say, you know, I want to do this every year. Obviously, we're sitting around and telling our clients that it'd be beneficial to advocate, you know, two or three year votes on these so that we de-emphasize short-term thinking and don't have the market swing of every 12 months determine whether or not these compensation packages are approved or not. Sounds like this Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act is keeping you pretty busy, Jonathan. I sure do. I mean, this is the Lawyers Full Employment Act, I'd say, for the next five years. So it's a very interesting time, as the proverb often says. With the sand pay stuff, the real action items for people are going to be try to simplify some of our disclosures so that we have less of this boilerplate that we've been using over the last few years and really make it readable for shareholders so that they understand what we're talking about. Lots of our clients are also starting to reach out to their major shareholders using surveys or forums or meetings just to kind of get some pre-vote communication going on to make sure that they know what's coming down the pike. The reason being that immediate scrutiny for these first stay on pay votes is likely to be fairly intense. These are public companies, and so the results are going to be made public, and it's going to be a bunch of egg on your face if you lose this vote and you didn't see it coming. Well, now that's why we're counting on experts like you, Jonathan, to guide the way. Now, you talked briefly about proxy access. Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, proxy access, the Dodd-Frank Act includes an option for the SEC to issue rules allowing shareholders to have access to proxies 
whereby they could nominate directors. There were rules issued a year ago already, and there expected to be some action on that coming up very shortly. The way the rules read as proposed, large filers would have to allow access to shareholders with 1% of the total outstanding stock with a sliding scale for mid-sized and smaller issuers. But this is going to enable nominees to share the proxy card and shareholders may be able to split votes between the slates. And so this will be interesting going forward. What we really need is the regulations to come out from the SEC so we know exactly how to implement that. But in the meantime, lots of our clients are considering bylaw amendments to increase advance notice requirements so that these things aren't shoved down their throats at the last minute. Now, one other area being affected we wanted to touch on, Jonathan, before we let you go, is that of investment advisors. Absolutely. Um, there's lots of provisions in this act apply to you know, hedge funds and investment advisors to hedge funds and things of that nature. But one that's kind of fallen under the radar and that may catch the unwary is that they've changed the federal registration threshold from between 25 and $30 million in assets under management to $100 million. So if you're a smaller investment advisor with $100 million or less in assets under management, you may be required in the next year to deregister with the SEC and actually apply with state regulators that may have supervisory authority over you. So it's one of those things that's just kind of buried in the legislation, but something that people need to be attentive to. Lots of so-called hidden gems in the legislation, Jonathan. You've gone through it all, and your eyes are probably pretty well bloodshot by lunch on any given day. (laughs) That's to say the least. The legislation's one thing. It's the hundreds of regulations that are required under it that we're waiting for that is really going to write this law and tell us what it really means. Right now, we're all kind of in a state of suspense, waiting to see what the next nine months to a year brings. Well, we'll certainly stay tuned. And in the meantime, if we want to learn more about the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, what's our move? U.S. law is going to obviously be covering this going forward. There's going to be all kinds of alerts coming out. It's going to be in the media. It's one of those things that going forward, if you're possibly covered by this, and that's kind of the threshold question, am I affected by this? There's going to be a lot of action, and there's just the need to stay in touch with experts and advisors for good counsel going forward. Jonathan Wagner, we appreciate you staying on top of this for us. Thanks for joining us here on U.S. Law Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, that's it, folks. We're out of time. U.S. Law Radio is produced by Roger Yaffe. Send your comments and show ideas Roger's way. This edition of U.S. Law Radio has been brought to you by SCA Limited, forensic engineering and origin cause experts working nationwide since 1970, and by Ringler Associates. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided injured parties and their attorneys with the finest structured settlement services. This is Dan Walker. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you again next time for another fresh edition of U.S. Law Radio.